welcome to The Big Deal, where we unlock the details and drama behind the business of sport in Australia and around the world. Join me, Warren Treadray, along with Andrew Montessi and our expert guests as we take you into the boardroom for behind-the-scenes access and analysis of contracts, negotiations, endorsements and much more. Subscribe to our show on your favourite podcast player and don't forget to sign up too at www.thebigdeal.au for a weekly wrap of the latest deals, breaking news and many more exclusive opportunities. Welcome to another episode of The Big Deal. I'm Andrew Montessi, joined by AFL legend Warren Treadray. G'day, Treaders. Hey, Monty. How are you? Good, mate. Now we're back with our sports business wrap. And as usual, we've got the latest big money moves in Australia and around the world. So let's jump straight into it. We've got some AFL talking points to start off. And Treaders, we've got the details for AFL Gather Round. We've got some info um, from... 2023 and also some new details for 2024 yeah andrew dillon the um what is he called acting ceo or ceo to be of the afl was in adelaide uh, during the week and the details have been announced for the 2024 schedule it's going to be in round four which for people that are booking their flights and accommodation you better hurry up because it's the fourth to the 7th of april and it's funny go off on a little bit of a tangent i saw a local uh, hotel actually book out in the space of three hours and this is not a plush hotel. This is a real cheap hotel. So in Hindley Street, uh, the back blocks of Hindley Street, which is, as we know, Adelaide pretty well, it's within probably, what, 500 metres of walking to Adelaide Oval. So it just tells you once the dates were announced within twenty or well, within three hours of the announcement, they've already sold out. So that'll tell you uh, where it's at. So, yeah, 4th to the 7th of April 2024, round four of the AFL season. And if we go on the success of last year, it delivered an $83 million in value to the South Australian economy. 260,000 people attended games. Over 41,000 came from interstate, which injected $56 million into the state's coffers. And millions came into regions from outside of the city. Now, next year, there is yeah, there was a game regional um, at Mount Barker between North Melbourne and Brisbane, and this year's gather around. It generated $2 million to the local economy. The big word is with the joint AFL and South Australian Government Fund to update facilities and stadium and toilets and change rooms and, and ovals so that AFL um, hit the AFL specifications, the Barossa is the big one that the government's desperate to get up um, because, you know, we know Adelaide is known for the Barossa Valley, its wine regions, you know, McLaren Vale down south, the Adelaide Hills, but the world-round area is to the north. It's um, you know the expressway can get out there in about forty minutes from where I live, and I live in the west of the western suburbs. Um, and realistically, that's where they want to inject their their uh, funds, and they want to get a game uh, in in the Barossa region. We know Penfolds, all the big wineries are up there, and I think this is a absolute must-have for the uh, South Australian government. Yeah, that'd be huge. Yeah, listening back to the press conference, it was interesting. Like, com- completely understand the value that it brought, but. You know, in typical uh, politics fashion, they're always coy in terms of what the cost is. You know what I mean? Like, and I like I, it's one thing to talk about the economic benefit to have the numbers, but then to not kind of share the costs. I don't know. It just feels feels a bit vague to me. So that's probably the one thing that I find a little bit frustrating. Yeah, and I agree. And and if you believe what's reported, what is reported? What's been reported is about fourteen million a year. So. If it's simply right and $14 million's right and you're getting an $83 million um, benefit, well, that's good business, isn't it? 
the profit and loss yeah. sheet looks pretty good. They've, they've got people, they've got jobs from this. Um, you know, as you say, 40,000 visitors, um, mostly I think 55 or 60% something coming from Victoria, which you'd expect it's the closest state to South Australia in terms of driving, you know, seven-hour drive um, or an hour flight, 40-minute flight. So, you know, and of those 41,262 visitors, they generated 151,000 or 151,500 visitor nights generated. So, you know, you're talking accommodation, you're talking food, you're talking tickets, you're talking cabs, Ubers, the whole lot. Um, so, yeah, that, that's the one bit, as you say, that irks all, but that's in commercial confidence. Well, don't roll out all the numbers and beat your chest how good it is if you don't reveal how much we pay for it. You know, and I think at the end of the day, I remember when the South Australian government got Lance Armstrong to come out to it down under. I think it was reported at one stage with Freedom of Information some five years later that they paid about a million bucks to his charity or through to him. So, yeah, that would be nice to top this off. But, you know, anyone who went to gather around, I was there for multiple games. I went out to the Mount Barker game. I was at a couple of games at Adelaide Oval. It was an overwhelming success. I think it was great for South Australian tourism. But I think the big upside needs to be that the, the, the biggest promotion area for South Australia to the world is their wine region and to the north, it's the Barossa. And if they can get a game up there or two games up there as a place opposed to playing them at um, a Norwood Oval or, or a Mount Barker, then I, I think yeah, that would really help out. Yeah, absolutely, mate. And I think, as you said, um, no doubt it's a success, but let's just see all the numbers. You can't just come out and, and show us one side of the numbers and not tell us the rest. So anyway, I'm not going to harp on too much about that. Uh, yeah, as you said, the... The acting AFL CEO, Andrew Dillon, was in town. He also denied that there's confusion about the tackling rules at the moment, Traders. What do you reckon about that? Well, he's got his feet under the desk very well at AFL House then if you're in denial. So he's passed the first test. So uh, Andrew Dillon's a ripping bloke, but this is also the former legal head counsel who wrote all the rules around uh, the ability to do injury, which is the latest bit they put in at the start of this year, which pretty much says that anyone who gets onto a football field, if someone gets injured or you do something rough, you can be suspended. But if if he genuinely believes this, there's dead set delusion kicked in at AFL House because only the last week or so we've seen James Sicily handed a three-week ban for a tackle that left Brisbane star Hugh Mc, uh, McLuggage concussed. Uh, the Hawks appealed that decision, didn't happen, so three weeks stays. But Dan Butler on the previous Friday night did a what we many experts and former players and even people in the media said um, copped a one-week suspension for what was deemed as a perfect tackle. But in the wake of that, St Kilda repealed and then got off. So here we are, the AFL's own tribunal system, the match review officer um, and the laws, even reports now multiple clubs, including my old club, I've read that um, not even showing the players the AFL's uh, guidance on these issues because it's got holes all the way through it. So... If they think the AFL that, you know, that I don't really see the confusion, that was Dylan's quote yesterday. Well, at the moment, the penalties or the sanctions are in the right spot. But as we do a year, every year, we'll see how the season's going. But no, 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 not see how the season's going. Let's only penalise dangerous tackles where you're ramming people's head into the ground. If it's innocuous, you know, to a state's accidental head clashes, shouldn't be penalised. That's just my view. Yeah, I get there's a a, a, a legal side to this. There's mounting legal cases that it's probably going to send insurance companies broke and then the premiums the AFL has to pay going forward, it's going to be, could be untenable in terms of, you know, how much money you're going to end up paying your premiums to have the game. But right now, if we can't have regular commentators or former players and journalists 
look at two incidents and go, that's suspendable, that's not, that's an accident, and that's out of their realms of control, then we've got problems and we've clearly got problems and the AFL's in denial. Yeah, it seems like uh, seems like classic lawyer speak. He's read his own fine print and he can understand it. It's all good. Uh, and a lot of this stuff, you know, as a lawyer, you know, it gets it gets hashed out in a in a court. But that's not how we want things to to roll in the AFL. So, completely agree. I think they need to sort that out quick, smart. Now, um, Treaders, the the Bombers are exploring a rebrand. What do you think yeah, about that? Yeah. Oh, this is just. Is this virtue signalling? Is this political correctness? Is this just stupidity? Oh, I'm not sure which one it is, but there's the reports, as you say, the Bombers are considering replacing the Bomber aircraft, which is their logo, right? And there's a research project canvassing members and stakeholders' thoughts throughout the year. Well, this has been reported in the Herald Sun um, that Essence, considering whether its fans believe that the wartime aircraft logo is the best representation of the famous Victorian site. Well, it has to be. If the Essendon Bombers are the Bombers, what, we're going to change their name to the aeroplanes? Like, I'm not sure how this started, but Essendon's logo is one of the oldest in the com. You know, the, this current design they're using is how much the clubs changed their logos. It was 1997. I just think this is ridiculous. Like, what? Well, this is before Marissa and players who went to war and fought for their country and played for their club, who were proud of the fact that they fought and played and represented their club and their country, both on a footy field and in, you know, uh, in wartime. I'm not sure how this would need to be changed. Yeah. It's not offensive. It's history. No. no. And I was very surprised to to read about it. And, you know... Matty Lloyd came out, club legend, and slammed the idea, which which I love. I think you know the legends have to come out and kind of say this just isn't on. I think um, you know if it is a virtue signalling thing. I mean, I can't honestly, surely not. I mean, I know oh. the world's gone crazy, but like, well, I just, well, I just this don't. is the thing you got to ask the question because there's so much stuff that's gone stupid. Yeah, I mean, you look at some of the stuff that's happening in America now, and you're like, oh, what? Yeah. But from a from a pure branding perspective, it's it's an interesting one. I think it's always good for for brands of any kind to you know do a occasional review about where their brands at and whatever. But I think one of particularly with sport, a traditional powerful logo that you don't change over many years has a massive impact. Like yeah. as as you say, the irrespective of how professional the games go, that. Uh, Tradition, tribalism is so important. And and even with the Crows, when they changed their logo, um, gosh, it's been a while ago now. It's plus 10 years, I think. That that wasn't met with a, a whole lot of support and, and still isn't, to be honest. A lot of people want to throw back to the old school Crows logo. People, footy fans love the traditional logo. They love that, that emblem. So I think it's dangerous territory if they're going to consider shifting this well they'll have to change their song too see yeah. the fly up aeroplanes. Oh, hang on the aeroplanes fly up up oh fairly uh, good there you go it must be a quiet news day it must be you've been watching the ashes 
Oh, loving it. Absolutely loving it. And, you know, Ollie Robinson's send-off has created quite the storm. Um, yeah, let's be honest, the stump mic picked up him. Um, giving him a decent send-off after he made 140 and clipped him all over the over all what, over the it field. Wasn't the, it wasn't the stump mark. You could read his lips pretty clearly. Yeah, but also, too, you read his lips, but then you could also hear elements of the stump mics and the microphones. Um, and Usman Khawaja, yeah, I, do I like this? This is tended for a tip for tat. Are the English media right saying Australia are whingers? Well, not really, but have we been doing it to them for years? Yeah, but the difference is if you're going to have you know, the technology we've got now where you can pick up microphones and you can abuse people and, and all that. Yeah, it's competitive, but you're giving him a send-off after he's made 140. I get Stuart Broad getting uh, Labashane out, first ball duck, giving him a send-off because the place was rocking in the first first um, innings. But not when a bloke's batted for 300, um, three, over 300 balls and you couldn't get him out. And when you did get him out, it was a no ball and it was frustration. But yeah, Ollie Robinson, mate. Get your, uh, I, I wouldn't see uh, Stuart Broad giving him a send-off after that long. You know, and Joe Root was really quick to pretty much say, well done, mate, because he'd made 100, and he gets it. But I just think this is a classic example of whingy poms versus cocky, arrogant Australians. And, yeah. you know, it's. I think this is what makes the series great. But do we need to be a little bit more sensible because we've got kids watching and all that? Yes, probably. And pick your moment. If, As I said, if he's got a first ball dark, and you've got a one for uh, zero for none, as they do. They do it around the other way over in England. Um, off the first ball, you're sitting there going, wow, this is on, this is fiery, this is at each other. And we've seen some wonderful contests over the journey, but not when he's batted for a day and a half. Doesn't yeah. sit right for me. Yeah, I mean, you need a bit of lip. And as as they say, the Aussies have been doing it forever. But, yeah, dropping F-bombs in prime time isn't, isn't flash and as you say just dumb the guy's made 140 like yeah that's pretty laughable well what, what else is funny though is moen ali the spinner who has only been playing 2020 and one day cricket for years got the call up after the previous spinner was out injured and he's got the typical unprepared spinning injury he's taking the skin off his in his uh, spinning finger um and he's been uh, paying quarter of his salary his match fee, that is, for putting cream and spray on his um, his blistered finger you know, before bowling. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to dry it out. So what's happening, yeah. you know, spinners will dry it out. It's no different to footballs with blisters on the back of your feet. You cover them up, and once the sting goes, you want to get the sting out of it as much as quickly as possible, and you want to dry it up. So then they use that as a grip. But he's effectively bowling on raw fingers because <laughs> he's been unprepared and hasn't bowled. Yeah, he's bowled 30-odd overs in a day. And I don't reckon he would have bowled 30 overs in six months of playing one-day cricket. I know. You, you can't help but feel sorry for him. You know, I understand why the, why the rule is in there, you know, to prevent ball tampering and cheating or whatever. But the poor bloke's got a busted finger and he just wants to try it out. And then he's been, been stung with a 25% fine from his match fee. So he'd be a bit flat. But no, would, I'm looking... But it has the I'm, classic... The other classic too, though, is if he puts strapping tape on, then that's seen as being an illegal advantage. Yeah. So the old putting a Band-Aid on, put some tape and padding it up, he'll get more grip from that. But, yeah, what's to stop him from putting in a painkiller in that finger and just keep bowling yeah. and hoping for the best? But he wouldn't want to put too much in his whole hand to fall asleep. <laughs> he'll, he'll be bowling on bone. Yeah. I'm trying to get... That'd actually probably work, work all right. Get a bit of tweak off the... Uh, off the bone, 
But uh, we'll be watching the Ashes closely and monitoring all the off-field stuff as well. We love it. Now, there's um, been keeping an eye on the NRL as well. Pretty fascinating one, actually. Obviously, we've, we've mentioned uh, the Dragons and how things have been pretty ugly for that club, uh, you know, with their coach, Anthony Griffin, getting sacked. Shane Flanagan's the new coach now. But what's happening with uh, Captain Ben Hunt and his contract treaders? So not only is he playing for the Maroons at the moment um, in the state of origin, he's Australian player, he's a superstar, he's on about a million bucks a year. He is reportedly so desperate to get out of the place, he's willing to pay 150 grand of his own contract to leave immediately. So he wants out. And he has until August 7 to make his mid-season move. But the thing is, which other team, this team's interested, but which other team's going to be able to find about a million bucks in a salary cap year when they've already committed money elsewhere, unless they're running hugely under. So... He must hate the joint that much, and he must have been, you know, so invested in uh, the previous coach Anthony Griffin that he's pretty much said, "Hey, I'm out." Um, but this is this is really interesting because, you know, you put that in AFL circles, all of a sudden a key player, a key club cl- uh, captain, just says, "I'm done. I want out." You sack my coach. I want out. It's been unheard of, really. You know, I know mm. the the NRL has different trends, you know, different rules and operates differently to the AFL world where. Um, they have more or less junior development, so that's where Penrith's really been really good off that. So they don't have a national draft. They have their own sort of juniors and programs and promotion in, in the local areas to promote their own and develop their own youth. They also have a situation where 12 months out from a contract, they can pretty much agree to sign a five-year deal. If you're at the Melbourne Storm, you can sign a five-year deal. with. If you're at a contract at the end of that coming season, you can sign a, a deal in the preseason, committing publicly to someone elsewhere. Yeah, there's some different ways of doing it. Um, does it look great on the outside? No, but I'm also not familiar to that too, and I'm not used mm-hmm. to it. Was NRL fans and NRL media and tragic people who love their game are used to that system, and it's probably as we touched on before about the AFL. AFL still tries to make out that players don't commit um, in free agency middle of the year or 12 months out. It happens. They just don't put it on paper because they can't break any rules whereas i think the nrl's attitude to a lot of stuff is a lot more mature but i still don't like the fact that if you've got a, a bumper deal and your captain's bought into your club you're bought into your coach your coach gets sacked well i'm not sure you can just up and leave you've got a contract to to commit to yeah and you think about if you're a if you're a fan that's uh pretty pretty sad to see your um your captain and your superstar that desperate to get out it's uh pretty tough uh and speaking of tough we've been following the ongoing dramas in australian netball and and there's been a long-running dispute between the organization netball australia and the players in terms of negotiating the cba the next cba and it's got pretty ugly over the last week traders what's been happening well, it's got ugly because Australia's obviously got some international commitments that are coming up um, and we've got a World Cup in August. But the thing is, the negotiations between the organisation and the players over a new CBA's got so bad that Neville Australia said the players would not be named for a World Cup until a three-year deal is signed off. So it's effectively saying, well, I'm not picking an Australian team. I'm going to hold a gun to your head. And if you don't want to play for Australia, well, you got you got if you want to play, you've got to sign this first. So... It's copped a huge amount of – they've backflipped, and clearly and rightly so, because it's stinging criticism. And, you know, they've extended the current arrangement until after the World Cup. 
Um, but it's really an embarrassment. You know, they've had Collingwood pull out of their league, um, the Super Netball League. They're on the verge of their finals, pretty much starting this weekend. Um, and it's been a pretty good season, albeit for all these off-field issues. So it's clearly when they're, they're cash-strapped, they're struggling for stability, they're making erratic decisions, and to think you can shit on your own best players, Australian players, and force them into a gun to a head to sign a new pay deal. You know, they've clearly misread the room because where, where, where holds the power? The players hold the power because they need the game to go ahead, the, um, the administrators, and they've decided to pick a fight with the biggest names in the games, the one who are you know, reigning world champions, I think, by memory, um, and heading into a World Cup. It's just del- they're delusional. I just, I, I just can't fathom who on earth would have thought that doing that would have been a good idea. Yeah, we'll put a gun to their head. We'll tell them we're not going to name the team. And apparently they even said they were asked by an agent, uh, I read in a report, okay, like, so what's going to happen with the World Cup if, it, if the deal doesn't get done? Oh, we won't send a team. Apparently that's someone internally at Netball Australia alluded that they wouldn't send a team. <laughs> like, are these guys kidding themselves? Like, who thinks that's a good idea? You do things, moves like this kill the game long yep. term. They threaten to kill the, the sport. And netball has everything. Like, I've said this for years. Netball has huge participation. The um, the athletes are great. They're genuine community leaders who are so invested in building the game, supporting the game. Most of them have been playing for peanuts. Um, a lot of them have said no to going to AFLW and whatever else. And you keep you, you throw stuff like this in their face, I just feel really frustrated for the players. And it's it's embarrassing. Not only that, they're they're the world's best. They're an elite team and you got other nations looking at what's going on over here, going, Are these guys serious? Yeah, and also too, a lot of English players, Jamaican players come to play in Australia because we've got the best league in the world and we pay probably up there with the best in the world. And clearly if you're sitting down going, how are we going to get this sorted? What do we do? Clearly the person who made this decision or who signed off on it needs to step down. Like it's just ridiculous. Whether it's a CEO, a chairman, a board, they need to step down because not only have they had horror where they've gone super woke and virtue signal and say we don't want Gina Reinhart's money but no we'll take the Victorian government's money who have created the biggest lockdown in COVID and probably treated their people the worst of anyone like where's the hypocrisy with all this and then in a stage now where the debt's still there um, the game's you know in pretty good shape in terms of on court they need someone with a business brain to come in and clean it up and to align it. And Collingwood pulling out of the comp was always a possibility because first and foremost, they're a football team. They're an AFL football team, AFLW football team. And when the AFLW kicking off, then their Collingwood, probably netball team, has fallen away. They've got new management there. And they're effectively just recalibrating their club. But to think that when you sit down on the whiteboard and go, hey, we haven't got a players deal. Oh, we've got a pending World Cup. All right. And the players want too much money or we've got too much debt. Instead of bringing them in for a decent discussion, they've gone, you know what? Let's just tell them you're not eligible to play unless you sign this. How in the hell do you think that's going to work? Top level dumb. It is. It is just silly. Now, what about the boxing 
Trevor's, uh, Tim Tazoo, incredible 77-second 77 KO win um, versus Carlos Ocampo. He went fishing within 90 minutes of his win. It happened that fast. He was able to get out and drop a line in. Yeah, well, that's the interesting bit, isn't it? How big's his boat and how'd he tee this up? Or is he always thought this was going to be the case? Like 90 minutes, what'd you do? Get on a chopper and just land on your private private uh, boat and then go out in your dinghy? I don't know. But yeah, he's already prepping his title fight. And I remember at a young age, you know, you pay pay the money to watch Mike Tyson and sometimes it lasts 20 seconds. You're like, we waited four hours for all these undercards to see that bloke get smashed in 20 seconds. And it cost you 50 bucks back in the day. Well, this was very much the same, but he's already talking about a title fight with Jamelo Charlo, and this will include a camp in Vegas. It costs about 300 grand to put on, includes coaching, chef, team, rehab people. The camp will be locked down, no social media, keep them spies out. But if anyone's following in his father's footsteps, Kostya Zoo, well, the young fella's doing pretty well. And uh, as we all know, with fighting, you know, the the caliber of the fights you only get the big fights if you if you pick up a few of the others along the way and pay-per-view numbers would suggest that he's doing pretty well and people love him that's right and jumping along to the u.s open golf what's happened there in the last few days treaders well i watched this for about an hour and a half two hours yesterday uh wyndham clark has won um world number 35 only won by one shot uh, for the pga tour once before he'd won and and you know, he, he cleaned up three million US, which is four point three six million. One shot back is Rory McIlroy, whereas he's been in the news a lot um, lately. Um, obviously, with the Live Golf versus the US PGA, he was the the vocal sport, the person golfer out against Live. Well, that fell in his face, and unfortunately, yesterday he played bloody well. But both he and Clark, um, even the card. Um, went round and um, it was in uh, Los Angeles yesterday and one stroke back. He made 3.14 million Aussie and he's only won four majors over his journey. Well, four. Some people think, wow, that's amazing. You win four majors. But his last win over 3,000 days ago. That was the 2014 PGA Championship. So, you know, for a bloke who's so good and so close, he's just falling over at the final hurdle at a few lipped out putts. Um, Wyndham Clark, he lost his mum recently. Yeah, was very emotional. At the end scenes, yeah, family, friends, the whole lot. Even in the coverage, it was funny. They even uh, pointed to the uh, the uh, Hugh Hefner Playboy House, which was on the 14th hole being reconstructed <laughs> and refurbished. So it was like, hang on, this is uh, PGA Golf goes goes AWOL in uh, Hollywood Hills. But 24-year-old um, Aussie Min Wu Lee got first top 10 finish, $1.2 million in prize money. Cam Smith was also good. He finished top five. I think he came home with a three under, and he only took home one point four five million, which is nothing on his lip money. He got a hundred odd million to sign, didn't he? So, yeah, it was interesting the golf, and it was the first major tournament since they'd all been agreed and back together, and it looked like it was going swimmingly. Indeed. Now, speaking of big money, uh, we got a bit to unpack. Treaders with Michael Jordan. Yeah, well, they called him the greatest ever. I know everyone talks about LeBron, but. Six championships and no missed finals would suggest probably Jordan is the man. But not only is the goat in basketball, but also in business. He's selling his majority stake in the Charlotte Hornets, which is valued at $4.37 billion. He's expected to take home just under $3 billion Aussie. He bought it for just 558 mil. Wow. Talk about good business. NBA salary, um, his earnings, it's funny, isn't it? 
million, which is Aussie 137 million. His Nike earnings they're saying about 2.7 billion in it, and now the Hornets sale about 2. Uh, sorry, 2.9 and 2.9 billion. So he's it's fair to say his contract with Nike's been pretty lucrative, and also this uh, sale of an NBA franchise has been quite lucrative too, considering he only earned 137 million in his playing career. Yeah, a lot of people don't realise that. Obviously, he played in a just in a different era uh, of the NBA, which was iconic, but didn't have the you know the crazy money at that time. Um, but yeah, so 137 million Aussie from his NBA career, and now making billion, billions from from business. It's um, pretty incredible return. Um, prior to this, he I, I read that his net worth was around two billion. That didn't include the Hornets sale. So fair to say that number's going to be going up and uh, he's doing pretty well for himself. Yeah, and if you're interested in that as well, Monty, um, there's a website, I think it's spotrack.com or sportrack.com. You can go back and pretty much check any big US athlete in terms of NHL, NBA, Major League Baseball, check their salaries. You can go back and see with the, if you watch that um, last dance, where Scottie Pippen was only on two and a half or three million, and the next minute goes to thirty million when he goes and plays for the Trailblazers. Well, in Jordan, in that time, you can see his salary almost tenfold. I think he went, from, you know, maybe it wasn't tenfold, but maybe fivefold. It was about five or six million he was getting. Then he went to thirty million the next year because that was in the bumps in the TV rights. So mm-hmm. that that will show you exactly how it's at. It's even got current earnings of LeBron James, uh, you know. Like Kobe Bryant, you can go through all that. It's quite interesting to see where the supermax contracts sit and and how these players tee them up so they fall out of contract at the right time and they make um, hey while the sun shines when the new TV deals and broadcast deals kick in. And I, you know, I I like that all these numbers are are visible and public as we've talked about. Um, you know, you talked about how the NRL is professional enough for players to be able to make a call on a contract and you know six months ahead of time uh, and in with these US sports the numbers are public with salaries and things like that that we all you know people get precious about it from an AFL perspective I think it's I think it's good to be able to talk about what these guys are earning and how things have changed over the years yeah well it's no different to anyone else in their own industry performance based is it you know we talked in previous episodes about the maturity shown between Port Adelaide Hawthorne and Carl Amon when he was a restricted free agent well the maturity was they just let it go like a transaction. Well, you know, why hasn't that transaction come out? So then Hawthorne go, oh, yeah, we're paying this guy that much, someone else this much. Because you see the draft picks. Like I remember the Chad Wingard one from Port and, you know, three draft picks for Chad Wingard and Ryan Bird. And you go, wow, that seems a bit much. Well, it did seem a bit much and they did pay overs and it hasn't worked. So there has to be accountability with that too. But we're seeing the NBA moves. As soon as the season finishes, all of a sudden it kicks off again. Bradley Bill reportedly joining the Suns. Chris Paul will be sent to Washington, talk of a buyout. Bill joins Duran at Booker um, to effectively take on a new look to their big three. Yeah, and in classic NBA style, Chris Paul found out he was traded while on a flight um, to a media interview to promote his new book, Awkward. So (laughs) it's amazing, isn't it? Shouldn't change that book to be called Awkward because I think that's just the way it is. You know, it's just that's how they roll. They don't care. They just push ahead. Also, strangely, Bill's agent is the father of Phoenix CEO, um, Josh Bartlestein. So, uh, yeah, as much as it's a big sport, they, you know, all these things, they, they keep it in the family, so to speak. 
Yeah, well, the, the interesting one, we've talked about Jai Morant, where he was suspended 25 games for his gun antics on social media. Well, the implications are massive for him because unlike previous suspensions that cost him 83000 a game, this is total of almost you know 670000 The current suspension increases to 304000 per game because he's got a new deal that kicks in. And this is, you know, his first year of his $194 million rookie max extension he signed last July because his salary jumps up and he's between this last season that's finished suspension and his new season, which is next year of this new deal. Um, you know, his salary jumps from $12 million. So he's copped a, a fine of um, 83000 a game on his $12 million contract and then he goes to 304000 a game in his $33.5 million contract. He's still going to be able to put food on the table, but maybe his behaviour might um, curve a little if he's worried about his hip pocket because it's hitting him pretty hard. Just put the gun away, sir. Put the gun away. Now, as we continue to talk about these big numbers, uh, we chatted about uh, Lionel Messi's new deal with Inter-Miami and just kind of the, just the unique aspects of that. We're getting some more details uh treaders he's look looks like it's going to be two and a half year deal with an option for 2026 what are the numbers around that well it'd be worth us 150 million so just under 220 million aussie in salary signing bonus and a piece of equity of the team yeah earning up to us 60 million a year which is aussie 87.5 million this is before his revenue share agreements with apple adidas which has still been negotiated in the league so yeah, Messi turned his back on playing in Saudi Arabia, but it's a pretty good consolation prize if we look at it. Your details have been released on the New Deal with Saudi's tourism board. The New York Times reports Messi will earn $25 million US for a handful of appearances, social media posts, and all expenses paid holidays over a three-year term. So it sounds like he's got the best of both worlds. So not only is he getting to stay and play in, in the US, he's also, whilst he's turned his back on playing in Saudi, there's also a commercial deal and a tourism deal that's, that was probably on the table, I suspect, as part of his playing deal. Um, but if you look at some of the the big teams at the moment, you know, um, Kante, who is a French winning World Cup midfielder from Chelsea, he's about to sign. He's got injury problems. They're working. He's going to work 20 million euros. Sergio Ramos, former Real Madrid captain, four times Champions League winner, just left PSG. The word that he's probably going to go to the Saudis. Uh, and follow Ronaldo and and Benzema, Karim Benzema. So the the names and numbers. Uh, Navas is another player, worldwide player. Um, you know they're, they're they're talking all these big names. So all of a sudden now the big European leagues are going. Hang on, what's going on here? You know, no one could compete with the Real Madrids and Barcelonas and the English Premier League top tier. Now Saudi Arabia, if you're on the verge and you want your payday at the end of your professional career in Europe. Saudi Arabia with the money they're offering, you know, they're, they're chasing Luka Modric. Yeah, I'm not sure he's going to go. I think he's probably going to, the word is he may stay with Real Madrid, but he's got a massive deal on the table. And when they say they're going to make it a top five league, they might off the back of all these superstars, even though it might be their, their last contract sort of into retirement. It, the money's been offered is just out of this world. And you know, for some players, it's five, six, ten times what they're earning in the Premier League. That's how much money they're on. It's ridiculous. Yeah, it's amazing that a group can just come and just deploy 
so much money and and literally change a sport on a global level like just from deploying so much capital it's incredible yeah. it's just effectively buying the best players you know and then let's face it do you want to start a one or two year deal at liverpool or do you want to get a five year deal in saudi arabia um on five times the money you know with probably everything taken care of and the money we're talking to and we'll get on to the jude bellingham who's, who's left um barissa dortmund you know he's bundesliga player of the year you know, the money they earn is net so you can do all these numbers you know you know, 200,000 RAR a week, it's all net. And that's why there's various differences between UK tax laws and, and Spanish laws as you go forward. And what are the details of um, Bellingham's contract? Well, the deal between Borussia Dortmund has pretty much been confirmed in the statement with Madrid last week where they're initially going to pay 88.5 million pounds. So that's 103 million euros. And this is a 19-year-old player. He was, you know, dominated for England in the World Cup. He's Bundesliga in Germany, if anyone doesn't follow. That's the German league. Um, voted best player of the year. Uh, I think they finished second to Bayern Munich. Um, and there's also expected to be an extra 30 million euros in add-ons. So if he wins a Champions League, if he's world player of the year, all these sorts of things will, will push the deal in excess of 135 uh, million euros. So... But it doesn't stop there because Bellingham himself is expected to earn a minimum of £12 million per year on a six-year deal. So he's getting a million pounds a month. So around about £200,000, £250,000 a week. Um, and you know, and there's a release clause also set in. So if someone wants to try and poach him, it's set at a billion euros. So very much like we're seeing with the live golfers, they sign the deal, but if you want to back out of the deal... There's a payout figure. So no one's going to be able to get anywhere near that. You know, yeah. And as we said before, European soccer numbers uh, are more often than not net fees that are pretty much released. Um, so that's after tax. So the team takes on the tax as well. And and they're lucky in Spain, I think it was about 15%, which is significantly less for England, which is about 50%. Yeah, it's all some staggering numbers and details. But for every incredible athlete, with an amazing story and an amazing deal, like there's millions of hard luck stories out there. Most of them no one even talks about, but one came up that I was looking at this week. Uh, Josh, I don't even know how to say his last name. It's, it's, do you know how to say his last name? It's pretty bad. Uh, you know, McCartan? he obviously, didn't, be yeah, he obviously didn't, become the, didn't become the superstar that he was meant to be. He's a Chelsea Academy product. He was tipped to be a Blues legend. They saw him as the next big thing, uh, you know, and, and in this article, he was talking about how, you know, he wanted to be loyal to Chelsea, which is probably his first mistake because no one's loyal in this. No one's loyal in sport anyway, but particularly, particularly in this sport, in that region of the world. Like, you're kidding me. That was his big mistake. He rejected big offers from Man United and uh, Real Madrid, but then it started to turn. Chelsea, you know, he was trying to remain loyal to, ended up loaning him out to five clubs in quick succession. Yeah, playing, playing on, under five playing different, on underwater bog. Underwater bog, <laughs> under five different managers who couldn't give a stuff about whether he was loyal to Chelsea or whatever. So, you know, he's getting treated like crap. Then he gets injured. Then over the years, he... Gets moved on again. He falls down playing for League One, uh, playing in the League One with MK Dons. And now 
10 years later, uh, he's at his 10th club by age 30 and he's just moved to Oxford United. So 10 clubs by the age of 30 and he was supposed to be the next big thing. So I just thought we'd bring some balance. We talked about a lot of big numbers, a lot of amazing things happening for a lot of... uh, a lot of great athletes, but let's not forget the uh, the hard luck stories out there, Trotters. Well, it's real, isn't it? You know, for all the good s- stories, there's probably a thousand poor, bad stories where things haven't worked. You know, greatest young player ever seen, all of a sudden terms doesn't play again through a serious injury or, you know, in, in soccer, a manager can change, as we know, mid-season, um, and then it can change the fortunes of who plays. You know, quite simply... They have a, a theory and a thought, you know, the same two thing when a senior manager in, in professional soccer gets sacked. Say, for example, with Jose Mourinho, a man united, his whole backroom staff, which is about five or six people, including trainers and coaches and doctors, they all get moved on too. So they all work in a team environment. So as I said before, for all the good stories, there's many who don't quite, uh, it doesn't quite work out like they would have hoped it would. That's right. And now just before we wrap up, uh, a quick little note on the Women's World Cup. We mentioned a few weeks ago that FIFA was pretty pissed off with uh, some global European broadcasting offers. So it was actually threatening a blackout, which wouldn't have been good for anyone in terms of not showing the Women's World Cup. Of course, it was never really going to happen. They were always going to find a way to to show the uh, tournament in Europe. But they've finally done a deal, which is good. So Europe's big five soccer countries, France, Germany, Italy, Spain, and the UK, are all going to see the Women's World Cup, which is going to be in Australia and New Zealand. And pretty excited about that. It's going to be great to have that on home soil um, with with a cracking squad as well. Yeah, we're one of the best squads. Got one of the best strikers, Sam Kerr, dominated in England again. Um, scoring many, many times. Yeah, and, and it's not just her. It, she gets all the fanfare because she's the scorer, but there's a lot of very, very good uh, women's soccer t- uh, players from Australia playing over in Europe um, and some of the biggest clubs in the world in France and England and uh, Spain. But, yeah, that, that broadcast deal is imperative of it being very, very good because, you know, the free-to-air network has crossed 34 European territories. You get that done, then all of a sudden the whole of Europe gets an option to to watch and as we know potentially bet on and follow and, and that gets broadcast and sponsors reach because it's on tv and yeah common sense finally prevails and that's why you pay so much and fight so hard to win the rights to host the game so that regions like europe can look into your nation and also book a holiday or two so that wraps us up for uh, this week's wrap Uh, with the big deal now make sure you subscribe and check us out at www.thebigdeal.au i'm going to put up all of the notes and the numbers from this chat there were plenty of numbers all the breakdowns from all of the contracts so yeah if you sign up we'll send through all of the notes so you get all of the details thanks for tuning in thanks for tuning in to this episode of the big deal before you go Don't forget to join our community by subscribing for free at www.thebigdeal.au and get a weekly email bringing together the hottest sports deals, breaking sports biz news as it happens and much more. Join me at www.thebigdeal.au.